We interrupt your broadcast to bring you an episode from the Stephen Orell's network of truly epic podcasts. Find more shows at stephenorell's.com. Let's do it. The following podcast is going to contain spoilers along with unfettered feelings of nostalgia. Proceed at your own risk. folks plug the dam and eat some ham it's time for event or else the podcast where i go through most every major marvel and dc event one issue at a time one episode at a time because frankly the whole world domination thing got to be a bit boring i'm your host my name is steven and i am so happy to finally come to the end of crisis on infinite earths not because i didn't like it far from it the reason that jubilation currently radiates through every fiber of my being is simply due to the fact that I have been working through this event for over a year and a half. I mean, the first crisis episode landed on July 23rd, 2021. So yeah, it feels pretty good to be wrapping this sucker up, which is what we're going to do today with Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12, which is entitled Final Crisis. This issue sports a cover date of March 1986, but it hit the shelves on December 19th, 1995. It was written by Mark. I'm sorry. Did I say 1995? Is that what I said? I, I got to listen to that again. Let's, let's, uh, here, let me, uh, stop. Let me rewind. And, uh, let's, let's see what I had to say there. The shelves on December 19th. 1995 it was yeah 1995 idiot it's 1985 folks but i think you could have figured that out all on your own i'll uh i'll let you get back to it but it hit the shelves on december 19th 1995 it was written by marv wolfman penciled by george perez inked by jerry ordway the letters were by john costanza and the colorist was Thomas Ziuko. Okay, so as we've been doing, I'm going to give you the synopsis of this here issue. I know that you know this. I'm only telling you because this is a double-sized issue, and therefore the synopsis is going to be a bit longer than usual. And I, I just want to make sure that you're prepared. I mean, if you need to go grab some snacks or a soda, maybe you need to hit the restroom real quick. Well. Now's the time to do it. After the synopsis, like last week, rather than do the top three things to dwell on, I'm just going to go through the issue page by page and give you my thoughts as they come to me. This synopsis, by the way, was provided by DCFandom.com with extensive editing and rewrites by yours truly. That's me, in case you're wondering. As the issue opens, we are aboard Brainiac's starship with Dolphin, Captain Comet, Rip Hunter, Animal Man, the Atomic Knight, and Adam Strange, who, after marveling over the technology and grandeur of the ship, they discover that the Earth has gone missing. It is then that Brainiac wakes and makes his presence known. Brainiac, of course, wants to know what all these people are doing on his ship, 
and he threatens to destroy all of them. The team then has to do some pretty fast talking to make sure that the robot understands that he actually had been helping them in their battle with the anti-monitor. Brainiac, using his robot skills, can tell that they aren't lying. And though he has nothing in his memory banks about working with the heroes or even the crisis itself, Brainiac concludes that if they're not lying, then his memory banks must be corrupted. And so he agrees to help them. The problem, Brainiac admits, is that he's not powerful enough to go up against the anti-monitor. So he sets course for the world of a more powerful being. On Earth, which is now in the antimatter universe, the anti-monitor's visage is seen in the skies all over the globe. His past victories over the positive matter universes are meaningless, he says, because of the superhero's efforts to stop him. When he lists Supergirl and the Flash as casualties, Kid Flash demands to know what the flip happened to Barry. But rather than explain himself, the anti-monitor turns out the lights, and Earth goes completely dark, the skies covered in an inky blackness. Both of the supermen, one of Earth-1 and one of Earth-2, scan the globe and watch in horror as the populace panics. Harbinger appears and teleports them to a chosen destination, then gathers Dr. Light from Japan, leaving Sunburst to defend the island. When Dr. Light declares guiltily that she caused Supergirl's death, Harbinger replies that the battle had already killed Supergirl and that the anti-monitor's final attack merely gave her a swift death that ended her suffering. In the skies above, over every corner of the planet, the darkness splits into billions of shadow demons who declare war on all of humanity. Not, not in so many words. I mean, the shadow demons don't talk, but you know how actions speak louder than words? Well, the shadow demons launch an attack on everyone, everywhere, and that alone pretty much screams their declaration. Meanwhile, the superheroes, as they are known to do, band together to resist them. The Global Guardians team with other heroes to free their homelands from the threat, but the demons' numbers seem endless. Elsewhere, the Phantom Stranger summons Dr. Mist to help revive the specter who lies comatose. Below them, Harbinger has gathered a large group of heroes, along with Pariah and Alexander Luther, to lead a final assault on the Anti-Monitor, who, if you haven't figured it out by now, is the big bad of the story. Alex creates a light bridge that the heroes then use to take the fight to the Anti-Monitor, while in Salem, the greatest sorcerers and magic users of Earth work together to defeat the Shadow Demons. In the meantime, Brainiac's ship arrives at Apocalypse and goes into stationary orbit as he and his guests teleport to the planet's surface, where Darkseid appears and introduces himself. Back on Earth, the majority of the heroes are still battling the Shadow Demons when Dove is killed by one of them as his brother Hawk watches in horror. In Salem, Johnny Thunder sits in Dr. Fate's tower, watching as the gathering of magically powered heroes begin their silent incantation. The Earth-2 Green Lantern and Dr. Occult form the nexus 
of their energy. On Quard in the Antimatter universe, Harbinger and the heroes arrive at the Anti-Monitor's old crib, and surprise, surprise, Wally West, the Kid Flash, has come along for the ride. Wally explains to the other heroes that the Anti-Monitor killed Barry Allen, you know, the Flash, who was not only his uncle, Barry was Wally's mentor and friend. There was no way he was going to stay behind. Suddenly, an image of the Flash appears to the heroes, the last image of himself that Barry cast before his death. Wally follows the after image to where an insane psycho pirate clutches at the Flash's empty uniform. Kid Flash knocks him out and realizes that Barry Allen is truly dead when Lady Quark finds his ring. Pariah informs them that a great concentration of evil lies before them. They follow to find a towering, giant anti-monitor ready for the final slaughter. Meanwhile, in every corner of the globe, heroes and villains alike battle the shadow demons as the sorcerers in Salem release their spell, catching up the shadow demons in some sort of energy net and pulling them off into space. By the end of the battle, we have lost Lori Lamaris, Green Arrow of Earth 2, Cole of the Teen Titans, Huntress and Robin of Earth 2, Prince Raman, I don't know if I'm even pronouncing that right, Prince Raman, Bug-Eyed Bandit, and Clayface. Countless lives were saved, however, so yeah, that's good. On Quard, the Supermen of Earth 1 and 2, Captain Atom, Lady Quark, Firehawk, Captain Marvel, Firestorm, Wonder Woman, and the others strike at the Anti-Monitor, punching and kicking and firing energy blasts and such at the big baddie. And yet, despite all of their power, the Anti-Monitor shrugs it all off like it's nothing. And hey, that's okay. They're just a distraction, something to keep the Anti-Monitor occupied while Harbinger and Alex put their true plan into motion. See, the Anti-Monitor is feeding off of a nearby sun to power himself. And so Harbinger and Alex have Dr. Light use her power to absorb that sun's solar energy. Dr. Light is a little nervous about such a prospect, but Harbinger tells her that this moment is why she was given her powers by the Monitor all the way back in issue number four. And so Dr. Light gets to work. It's as the Anti-Monitor feels the power that he's taking from the sun begin to drain from him that Alexander Luther uses his strange powers to leech away the Big Bad's antimatter energy. Then, Negative Woman uses her negative self to bind the Anti-Monitor up in bands of negative, radioactive energy, which not only constricts his movements, it burns him a bit. With the Anti-Monitor weakened, Harbinger leads all of the energy-producing heroes against him, blasting all at once and not letting up. It's then, as the Anti-Monitor falls, that Dr. Light, using all of the awesome power of the sun that she's absorbed, blasts the Anti-Monitor through the ruins of his fortress and into the very bedrock of Quard. Captain Adam declares the Anti-Monitor dead, saying that it's over. And so, Alexander Luther, using the power he took from the Anti-Monitor in combination with his own, is able to pry open a space between the positive and negative universes, a hole big enough for the Earth to slip through 
into its proper universe. But then, as the heroes follow the Earth home, the mass of shadow demons that are still encased in their magical cage are pulled through the portal into the antimatter universe and straight into the fallen anti-monitor who absorbs their antimatter energy and rises to throw down once more, declaring that he no longer cares about their little positive matter universe. Instead, he's just going to kill each and every one of those heroes. He then spits out a massive amount of energy from his mouth and Wonder Woman receives the full blast, killing her. Well, this just straight up makes the Superman of Earth-1 all kinds of pissed and not in the way the Brits mean it. No, Superman is full of a fiery rage. First Supergirl and now Wonder Woman. Superman vows to destroy the Anti-Monitor, even if it means his own life. He tells the other heroes to hold his beer and makes ready to attack. Firestorm offers to help. That is, after he takes Kid Flash and Psycho Pirate, both who are unconscious, back to the positive matter universe. Once that's done, he says, he'll be back to lend an atomically powered hand. Superman, however, tells Firestorm and the other heroes to stay there in the positive matter universe. He's got this, but Lady Quark ignores him, declaring that she's got his back. But before the two can take the fight to the biggest of the DC bads, they are sucker punched by none other than the Superman of Earth 2, who with a single punch hits them so hard that both of them pass out. He hands their limp bodies over to Superboy Prime, ordering him to take them home since they, well, all of them, have too much to live for. Whereas he, the Superman of Earth 2, no longer has a home. And frankly, if he can no longer be with Lois, his one great love, then he'd rather die right there in the antimatter universe, ensuring that the anti-monitor takes himself one great big dirt nap. The Anti-Monitor postures and whatnot, telling Superman that he's going to die and stuff, when suddenly, AM, yeah, after 12 issues, I have finally decided to start calling him AM, because frankly, I'm pretty tired of saying Anti-Monitor. Ugh, anti-matter, Anti-Monitor, good lord, it just takes a lot out of me. Anyway, AM is suddenly racked with pain. Superman smiles. This apparently was all part of the plan. See, they knew that AM would absorb his shadow demons, and knowing that, the sorcerers, as part of their spell to remove the shadow demons from the Earth, changed the shadow demons so that instead of powering AM, they would destroy him from the inside. Superman takes advantage and starts throwing fists. Meanwhile, as Superboy Prime is about to go through Alex's portal, he realizes that like the elder Superman, he too has no home to go back to. And so, sending Superman 1 and Lady Quark through Alex's portal, he returns to help the Superman of Earth 2. Alex warns Superboy that he's not going to be able to keep this portal open much longer, and Superboy tells him to head on back to the Positive Matter universe because he's staying to help Superman. Unfortunately, Alex can't go through his own portal. In order for it to be sealed shut, he has to do it from the antimatter side. Superman continues his one-man war against AM, striking blow after blow, while the villain, his power waning, absorbs more energy from the anti-cosmos and blasts both him 
and Superboy. In the meantime, back on Apocalypse, Darkseid watches the conflict on a view screen. He tells the others that while Superman is most definitely powerful, he is not mighty enough to defeat AM alone. Darkseid, it seems, using something he refers to as his science, is able to use Alexander Luther as a conduit, and thus all that they are seeing on the view screen is being seen through Alex's eyes. Darkseid, still using his science, then sends a powerful burst of energy through Alex's eyes, blasting AM into a nearby star and killing him. Superman, Superboy, and Alexander Luther, having never watched the types of movies in which the villain always comes back from seeming death one last time before finally being put down by the hero, find themselves more than a little surprised when A.M. suddenly comes back from his apparent death, but this time as a spectral ball of fiery energy, which Superman simply flies out to and punches into pieces, most of which fall back into the star that summarily implodes, the shockwaves of which will disintegrate everything within a million miles, including the three of them. And so, Superman of Earth 2, Superboy of Earth Prime, and Alexander Luther Jr. of Earth 3 are left with nothing more to do but wait for their inevitable doom. Superman's only regret, as their end draws near, is that Lois wasn't there to see them triumph against the greatest evil the universe has ever known. At that, Alex produces Lois from some sort of pocket universe within himself, where she had been sent to wait. She tells her husband that she had been to a beautiful and tranquil world. Alex tells them that while he can't return the four of them to Earth, he is able to take them all to this beautiful place where Lois had been. Figuring that living a long life in this new, seemingly perfect world sounds a bit better than dying in a few seconds from the shockwave of the imploding star, Superman, Lois, and Superboy agree to go. Back on Earth, Lila, speaking to Pariah and Lady Quark, talks about three facts that have come out of the crisis. Fact one, the apparent death of Wonder Woman. Quote, when the monitor's weakened death beams struck the Amazon princess, she did not die. She was somehow sent back through time, devolving as she did. Wonder Woman was not born of flesh and blood, but formed from clay and given life by the gods themselves. Time continued in reverse. Her clay spread itself again across Paradise Island, and the Amazons were returned to the Grecian Isle. They had fled. Fact number two, Mount Olympus. Zeus brought the homeless Wonder Woman of Earth 2 and her husband Steve Trevor to Olympus, where they could live peacefully. Fact number three, the deaths. The body of Robin and the Huntress both of Earth 2, along with Cole of the Teen Titans, are never found, while all of those who died are mourned. In Keystone City, after doing some tests, Jay Garrick tells Wally West that when he was struck by the anti-monitor, his body chemistry was changed. As a result, Wally, Kid Flash, is no longer dying each time he uses his super speed. Wally then declares that the fastest he can run now is the speed of sound. And frankly, since he's no longer dying, he's pretty okay with that. He then dons Barry Allen's uniform, announcing that from this day forth, 
The Flash lives again. Back to Lila, she continues with her narrative, stating that in this new world, the great disaster will not exist in Earth's future, but a lost child will be found in Command D, adopted by General Horatio Tomorrow of the Planeteers and named Thomas. Jonah Hex will be torn from his era to fight in the future, while the Guardians of the Universe must face the First Division in their ranks. Thus, Lila concludes her tale, and Lady Quark and Pariah ask her to help them explore their new homeworld. They leave with her, honoring the memory of their benefactor, the Monitor. And finally, as this issue ends, in Arkham Asylum, two of the staff members discuss a new patient who seems beyond help, straight-jacketed in a rubber-lined room. Roger Hayden, formerly Psychopirate, babbles on and on about Earth's Beyond Numbers, the Anti-Monitor, and the memories, which only he had been allowed to keep. Whew! Now, <laughs> that was one heck of an issue. So, now that that incredibly long synopsis is done, like I said, I'm just going to flip through the book and we'll see what piques my interest. We'll start with the cover, which is just freaking amazing. Again, George Perez spent so much time on this cover. He had to have. It's like a cityscape from the top. You're, you're looking down at this cityscape and a, a giant anti-monitor is rising from among the buildings and all of the heroes are attacking him. And he's got heroes clutched in each of his fists. It's just, it's an amazing cover. And it says at the very top, giant final issue spec spectacular, which it certainly was. Now, since that synopsis was so freaking long, I'm probably not going to dwell a lot on all of the individual pages, but there were a couple of moments that I did specifically want to talk about. So we'll kind of flip through here. So the first thing I wanted to talk about here is the, the darkness that covers the earth. When the earth gets sucked into the antimatter universe and as this issue opens or or a few pages into this issue when the the like like a holographic projection it's more of like a laser light projection of the anti monitor's face is shown to everybody in the world and he has his little speech where he tells them that he's going to kill them all and blah 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 and then suddenly the earth is just covered in darkness it's literally just enveloped in this black ink, like somebody took a, a freaking black shell and just covered the freaking earth. And when we find out that this darkness is actually just billions of shadow demons formed together to make this shell, that that was a pretty creepy moment, especially when they just split apart and fly everywhere on earth and just start killing people. It's just, it was, it, it was a pretty creepy creepy part. And it really kind of ramped up the stakes in this issue. You know what everybody on earth at this point is having to face because not only is the entire planet, you know, it's been sucked into this freaking antimatter universe, which the people in the positive matter universe don't really belong there. Then all these shadow demons just freaking start killing people. And of course the heroes all over the globe start battling back against the shadow demons and there's just 
a lot of great panels. Again, I don't know for sure if throughout this entire 12-issue event, if every single superhero character and supervillain character were used in this event, but I feel like they were. It's definitely something that uh, we will be discussing in the next episode. I'll, I'll get to that later. But the battle across Earth is just really amazing, and we do have characters die off. Now, frankly, as the the various characters, well, most of the various characters, as they were dying off, it's almost like I could point to the ones that were going to die. I mean, well, especially the Robin and the Huntress of Earth 2. You know, these were two characters that really shouldn't have been there in the first place when the the multiverse came together as one universe and they moved some of the Earth 2 characters and uh, characters from other Earths onto the new Earth. They specifically told us that their histories became part of this new universe's history. But there were just a handful of characters, such as Robin and the Huntress, both from Earth 2, who did not have any history, you know, uh, among the collective mind or minds of, of the people of Earth. They never existed there. And so what else was going to happen to them? I just, it, you just feel like certain characters like that were, when the multiverse merged, certain characters like that were brought back or were brought into this new universe simply so they could kill them, frankly. That's kind of the way I feel about it. And oddly enough, I, I don't remember what podcast I was listening to, but somebody was talking about the Teen Titans, and then that conversation led them to the Teen Titans, uh, or at least the team that was around that led into the crisis. It might have been, I don't remember who was talking about it, but the character of Cole, who really I've never heard of until uh, I read this this uh, this mini in this event, and uh haven't really heard much about her outside of this event. And the, uh, the, the conversation that I was listening to was that Marv Wolfman knew that he was going to have to kill off a character from the Titans, which Teen Titans was the book that Marv Wolfman and George Perez worked on, you know, that kind of helped make their names, especially George Perez. And, uh, then they get on the, the, the crisis on infinite earths and, Wolfman knew he had to kill one of his uh one of his precious teen titans so what he did was he created a character before the crisis started knowing that you know since he was going to be writing crisis on infinite Earth, infinite earths he created the character of Cole primarily knowing that eventually he was going to kill her off in the crisis that's I don't know if that's true or not that's just something I heard uh it was nice to see dark side have at least some part to play in this event, you know, straight from the beginning, his, his very first appearance in this event, he's kind of like, uh, I don't know what's going on, but I'm just going to kind of disappear into the shadows and see who wins and whoever wins they're They're going to be weak and exhausted and I'll just take the power from them basically. Uh, but then he seems to have changed his mind. He realized that if he doesn't help, then just like everybody else, he's going to be, he's going to cease to exist. The death of Hawk was kind of sad. I'm not really all that familiar with Hawk and Dove. I know who they are. 
Uh, I've never really read any of any issues with them in it other than the crisis. But the fact that Hawk dies while his brother, I said that wrong. The fact that Dove dies, did I say it wrong from the very beginning? Dove is the one that dies, people. You know that. I said that when I did the synopsis. So just settle down. All right. Stop typing out your emails. I've corrected myself. Dove is the one that dies and Hawk has to watch it happen and, and, and can't do anything about it. Now, I do feel like when Hawk and Dove made an appearance, their, their first um, post-crisis appearance, I don't know if whoever Hawk is, whatever his name is, I don't know if it's the same guy, but I feel like whoever was Dove is a, was a woman. I don't, again, I, I, I don't have really a lot of history with those characters. I really enjoyed all the magic users coming together. I think I mentioned that in one of the previous issues that uh, even though I'm not as familiar with most of these characters like I would be if this was a Marvel book, I just kind of felt like a spirit of camaraderie and energy whenever, you know, these groups of characters who maybe wouldn't normally associate with each other are suddenly coming together to help fight off this evil. And that's that's something we're seeing here with uh, with the sorcerers. When most of the the deaths, when we see most of the deaths in this issue, it's this just double page spread that again, I want to say that George Perez went above and beyond, but this just seemed to be his norm when it when it came to to making comics. He just he just put a lot of detail into stuff. But this this double page spread is amazing. There's there's a lot of panels on it. It's showing what's what's going on in Chicago and New York and Philadelphia, New Orleans, uh, even with a freaking warlord over in Scar Terrace or whatever that's called. And and you see Gotham City. And then in the middle of all this, you know, it's like all, all these battles that are going on with these shadow demons are, are, are surrounding the center of the page, which is the, the magic users concentrating and trying to get that power out there to take out the, the shadow demons. And there's a really good close up of the, the Green Lantern of Earth 2 and this uh was it dr occult uh they're just they're just sweating just sweat is just pouring off of their faces their teeth are gritted and it just you can really feel the exhaustion there and the stress just just from the art just because of george perez just from what he put in this in, in into this book now i will say that when cole died i didn't really understand that that's what had happened they mention it later in the book, I believe, uh, but I didn't realize at the time that that's that that Cole had died. And frankly, I think that's when Huntress, yeah, because Cole basically she can create crystal, I guess, and she uh, Huntress is trapped under some rubble, and Robin is trying to pull her free, and the shadow demons are coming to get them, and Cole flies down and creates a crystal dome around the three of them to try to protect them from the shadow demons. But the shadow demons just fly right through that crystal dome. And then we see the crystal dome turn into black. And so, yeah, that's when the three of them die. But they, they say that at the end of the book that their bodies are never found. So I don't know if that had a, uh, had an effect later post-crisis, if that was a story element that came out post-crisis. In fact, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write that down real quick 
because there's a certain somebody I'm, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions to. Now, the battle over on Quard with the, the other heroes who didn't stay behind on Earth, their battle with the Anti-Monitor was really the, the shining point in this entire issue. The, the, the whole issue is great, but for me, the best stuff was, was the battle there with the Anti-Monitor. And for example, when all of the heroes that can fire out some sort of energy blast, you know, Superman with his heat vision and Captain Adam who can shoot bolts of radiation, you know, these radiation blasts and blah, 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 and all that stuff. When they're all just opening up, basically just firing at, at the anti-monitor and just pouring it on. That was, that was a great moment. The, the whole sequence, the, the, the plan that Alexander Luther and Harbinger had put together to take out the anti-monitor. I mean, everything fit together really nice. I mean, well, really nice or very nicely. I don't know. Shut up. It just, it, it was, uh, it was put together very well. The, uh, the magic users creating a spell that removes the shadow demons from earth, takes them into space and they come back later. And when they do, you're like, oh, no, they shouldn't. They, they came back and made things worse. And then you find out, no, that was actually all part of the plan. Just everything, you know, the Dr. Light absorbing the power of the sun, which weakened the anti-monitor. And then Alexander Luther using his power over antimatter to then leech off more of the anti-monitor's power, thus weakening him, weakening him even more. And then negative woman wrapping him up in her negative bands of energy while the, the heroes just, like I said, pour on the, the, the energy blasts and ultimately culminating in Dr. Light, who has absorbed, you know, all this energy from the sun, just firing one last massive bolt at the anti-monitor that just literally buries him in the earth. It's, it's, it's really good. Not, not the earth, but cord, you know what I mean? But of course, like any good story like this, the 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 villain doesn't you you don't take the villain out right away at the end. There's always a, a false win, and this one had like two or three false wins. Uh, but it's the that's the first one. They they think that they have killed the anti monitor, and then Alexander Luther opens up this portal between the two universes, and the portal. I didn't mention it in the synopsis, but the portal is actually him. It's like he turns into this portal. It's this human figure shaped portal that's that's big enough for the earth to go through, which was kind of cool and yet kind of weird at the same time. And then the 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 shadow demons are sucked through the portal and they go straight for the anti-monitor who uses them to power himself back. And the first thing he does is seemingly kill Wonder Woman which drives Superman just round the bend. He's just ready to, you know, this is a guy that doesn't kill. This is a guy you got to, you know, for me, granted, all my history with Superman is, is after crisis. But the big thing with Superman has always been that he doesn't kill. And that, I don't know when that started. It obviously didn't come from his creation because some of them golden age stories that I'm reading, he he doesn't seem to have a problem when villains die around him. But he becomes, you know, the big blue boy scout, as they call him. And, and I, I think I've talked about it before, but post-crisis, there was a 
mini series that crossed over. It was a, 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 a DC Dark Horse crossover miniseries. Dark Horse had the licensing rights to the, the Aliens franchise. And so it was Aliens versus Superman, basically. And even in that story, Superman wouldn't kill the aliens, despite how many people that they killed. He just, he wouldn't kill them because they were a living sentient being. But here he's like, I'm going to kill the freaking anti-monitor. There's really no choice at this point. He has to die. But of course, he doesn't get to be the one to do it because Superman of Earth 2 throws one punch that knocks both Lady Cord and Superman of Earth 1 unconscious. I just thought that was awesome. This uh, this issue, you know, it's like if there was any wonder which Superman might be more powerful, I think this issue kind of answers that for us. And maybe that's just the way I'm interpreting it, but it seems to me that the sur- that the Superman of Earth 2 is way more powerful than the Superman of Earth 1. And that then, of course, leads into the battle between Superman of Earth 2 and the Anti-Monitor. And it's like it just went up six or seven more notches as far as how awesome this issue was. As, as cool, as great, as fun, as awesome as it was to, to read uh, the, the scenes where all of the heroes are battling the Anti-Monitor, the ones with Superman and Superboy here near the end of the book where they're taking on the anti-monitor, it's just, I mean, Superman throws a moon at him at one point. He takes then two pieces, two giant pieces of this moon, slams them together against the anti-monitor. It's just freaking great. And over and over and over, every time you think the anti-monitor is down, he gets back up again. He gets knocked down and he gets back up again. I don't know the rest of the lyrics. Is it ever going to keep him down? Something like that. But it's only when Darkseid, using Alex Luthor as this weird conduit from Apocalypse over in the positive matter universe into Alex Luthor in the antimatter universe and, and fires this energy out of his eyes that that's what ends up taking out the antimonitor. And I find that really kind of interesting that after all of you know all of these issues in which the the number of times in which the heroes went toe to toe with the anti monitor in the end really it's dark side that kills him you know that's kind of that's kind of funny that uh it's all you know it's it's almost like this is uh DC, the dc universe saying all right well the an- the anti monitor up to this point was the biggest bad of the DC universe, but now there's a new sheriff in town because Darkseid's the one that took him out. Well, actually, that's that's not true. If anything, Darkseid destroyed the anti-monitor's body because even then, you think the anti-monitor is dead and he comes back, but as a uh, like a spectral ball of fiery energy and he's screaming, Superman! Superman, I will not die until you die with me. And Superman just flies out to him and punches him once as he screams, I have had enough, and punches him so hard that he explodes and falls back into the sun, which then implodes. And yeah, at that point, he is finally dead. Now, we get this moment here at the end 
after the anti-monitor dies and Superman and Superboy are have resigned themselves to the fact that they're going to die there in the antimatter universe. And Superman wishes aloud that that Lois could have been there with him. And that's when uh, Alexander Luther just goes, uh, she is alive, Superman. I've had her with me this whole time. And at first, when I read that, I'm like, why, why the frick did he wait until now to tell Superman that Lois has been alive this entire time? Superman has been going crazy since since last issue, which is when he learned that his home, his home planet of Earth, Earth 2, was is gone and Lois with it. He's been he's been going a little mental. Why did Alexander Luther not tell him? And I feel like if Alex had told him, you know, the fact that Superman of Earth 2 felt that he no longer had a home. Anything and everything that he has ever loved is gone. There's nothing in existence for him anymore. And it's because of that that he is able to ultimately take out the anti-monitor. I don't know why I made a big deal about Darkseid doing it. I don't. I, I just forgot that in a moment of excitement, I forgot that Superman was the one that did it. But I feel like had Superman... Earth 2 Superman, had he known that Lois was still alive, he may not have been able to summon whatever it was he needed to take out the anti-monitor there at the end. And so I kind of got to forgive Alex for not telling him. And then we get the the ending, which is just them kind of wrapping up how this new world is going to work and giving us these strings uh, to other stories that are going to be coming. For example, Wonder Woman. She didn't die when the anti-monitor belched, belched all that energy out at her. She went back in time and became the clay again. I mean, ultimately, she just made this cycle. And when 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 next we see Wonder Woman in her own title, while I've not read any of those except for the very first issue. It opens in the past and you get all the information about who the Amazons are and then how Diana was created from the clay and all that stuff. And and so that story ultimately came out of the crisis. Um, I'm not really sure about the Commandy stuff. I don't know. I, I haven't read any Commandy stuff. I know he was in like the second issue of Crisis, but this whole... Uh, there's no, or there will be no great disaster in the future, which I know was that's Commandy is the last boy on earth. There was a, a great disaster and killed all the humans and, and, uh, all that junk. Um, sounds like something that would really be right up my street because I, I love post apocalyptic kind of stuff, but never read it. So I don't know what this, uh, whole thing about Com- Commandy is here. What that is leading to, possibly we'll find out next week. I do know that Jonah Hex had a title post-crisis that was set in the future. So they quickly set that up in one panel. Jonah Hex, he came from the past, but now he fights in a future gone mad. That's the boom. That's uh, Jonah Hex's new status quo. You know, we're just a couple moments in here at the end where they're just kind of setting up a couple of things, whatever they kind of knew. I guess they didn't quite know 
what these other creators were really going to do with these characters following the crisis. Probably they probably weren't really into um, what the plans were from what I understand when, when it comes to Superman, for example, and John Byrne taking over, I don't, I don't think that by the end of crisis, I feel like they didn't quite know. They, they didn't know yet at that point, exactly what they were going to do with Superman, how, how radical or drastic, you know, the changes were or were not, you know, however you want to, however you want to put that. But Jonah Hex, obviously that's something they, they knew was going to spin out of this because they, they put it in here and Wonder Woman, they knew, uh, what was going to happen with her because George Perez, uh, spearheaded the Wonder Woman book post-crisis. So that's what those moments are about. We get the, the thing with Kid Flash becoming the new Flash. And for me, coming into the DC universe, really post-crisis, for most of my reading, my comics reading life, Wally West was the Flash. And so there is a part of me that when they did end up bringing Barry Allen back, you know, it's they talk about the great revolving door of death in comics nowadays, but for a number of decades, there were I'm going to, I'm just going to say two characters, one Marvel character and one DC character that had died at one point. And it was just kind of an unwritten rule that they would never come back. And it was Barry Allen on the DC side and Bucky over on the Marvel side. You could also use uncle Ben, but they brought Barry back and they brought Bucky back eventually. So Bucky, I, I didn't have any problem with because they didn't replace Bucky with somebody who became my Bucky, you know, but for me, Wally West was the flash. So they brought Barry back. It's like, all right, whatever. But then they ended up, you know, it's like one of the only things that I, I will ever become kind of a, an angry nerd and shake my fist at a creator about is when, you know, what, uh, Tom King did to Wally in, uh, heroes in crisis, which I'm sure all that's been retconned by now, but, because they've had, good Lord, the, the the whole point of the crisis was it was a somewhat of a reboot. They got rid of the multiverse. They, they started everything over on, on, on one Earth. And uh, they've done that now at, since then four or five other times. <laughs> so I find that that kind of interesting. But yeah, then we end with the psycho pirate who is in a rubber room, basically in a padded cell with a straight jacket on babbling away about the crisis. He's the only one that seems to remember it. But that's not true because I know heroes, uh, many of the heroes talk about the crisis every now and then. In fact, I feel like just within the last 10 or 15 years, there was a, a headline hanging on the wall in the Daily Planet that mentioned the crisis. I, I, maybe I'm wrong. But the last thing I want to talk about real quick, because the, when, when, as I've been reading these issues. Uh, every once in a while, uh, a character that I've never heard of will just kind of reach out and slap me across the face. And I have really kind of no choice but to go out and find a little, find out a little bit more about that character. And I feel like there were a couple of those in this book, but, but the one that really, really kind of punched me in the face was the Bug-Eyed Bandit. I mean, the name alone, Bug-Eyed Bandit. It sounds like a Looney Tune. I, I had to look up who this was. And, you know, I talk about it before. I'm not, I'm not really into the research. I don't like doing research. Research just makes me sad and it, and it exhausts me. It's if I can't find what I'm looking for 
with my very first Google search, then I I lose all interest in in going further. And knowing that when it comes to research into history, it's like you can't you can't find one source and go, all right, so this is what actually happened during the the shootout at the OK Corral. No, you've got to read different sources because different historians will write history based on a certain point of view. And, you know, anyway, I I had to go out and look up Bug-Eyed Bandit. And really all I did, I was already at dcfandom.com because that's where I got the the synopsis. So I just, uh, you know, if you're ever over there and you're looking at their page that has, you know, that's telling you about a certain issue, it lists all the characters. And most of those characters that are listed are hyperlinks that you can click on and go to their page. And so that's really all I did here. And so according to uh, DCFandom.com, the Bug-Eyed Bandit is Bertram Larvin. Again, bugs, larva, love it. Love that kind of stuff. That stuff just makes me smile and makes my heart sing. Uh, He was a thief and an inventor who used uh, mechanical bugs to commit crimes in Ivy Town, he was an enemy of the Adam. Ivy Town, uh, Adam was the 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 Adam was Ivy Town's hero. Every 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 town, or I should say, every most every hero in the DC universe has their own town. And uh, let's see, the site continues. Bertram Larvin was an inventor who designed a mechanical insect to control insect pests. I, I don't know what that means. DCFandom.com. Uh, all those fandom.com websites are basically like Wikipedia. Just anybody can kind of go in and provide the information. So I, I, I'm not sure what an insect pest is, but I'm reading that as this mechanical insect can control real live insects. It continues, unfortunately, he had no financial backing to support his invention. He resolved to steal money he needed for his invention. He later used his invention to steal more. Soon he had an army of mechanical insects and took the name of the Bug-Eyed Bandit. Some of these people, some of these guys, you know, it's like, uh, what should I call myself? It's like Mento, which we talked about a couple issues back. Come on, do some uh, focus groups and whatnot. Let's, you know, market research that, that name and see how people feel about it before you just slap on a ridiculous bug costume and call yourself the Bug-Eyed Bandit. Uh, but it goes on, in his earliest known adventure, he encountered the Atom and discovered his secret identity of Ray Palmer. The Atom fought the bandit, and Bertram tried to use a special amnesiac gas from one of his robot insects against him. However, he accidentally used it on himself, forgetting the Atom's real identity. Larvin was sent to prison. As he had no memory of being a criminal, he turned out to be a model prisoner. However... Bertram was struck in the head during an accident at the prison, and he regained his memories, because that's, that's how that works. He broke out of jail and set upon avenging himself against the Atom. He sent one of his robot bugs out to kill him, and he believed that he had succeeded. The Atom survived, however, and the two came to blows once again. He managed to capture him and tried to learn the secrets of Ray Palmer's size control powers. The bandit accidentally released the Atom from captivity, however, and Palmer was able to defeat him. An electrical short caused the bug-eyed bandit to lose his memories once again. Uh, and then he dies in the freaking crisis. I don't know if he was ever brought back. So yeah, that's it, folks. The crisis is complete, and yet 
we still have one more episode in season two. One more chance to talk about the crisis. Normally, with the end of an event, it's going to be the end of a season and we move on to the next event in the next episode. But we're going to have one more episode. So make sure you return here next week where I'm going to be joined by none other than Peter Rios, who knows a thing or two about Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is good because I got questions. I need a nap. Event or Else is a presentation of the Just Another Fanboy podcast. Questions and comments can be directed to eventorelse at gmail.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to get you and your fellow patrons episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share this podcast with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. There's a snort. <laughs> uh, that may go at the end of the sentence. It better. <clears throat> Here it is. <coughs> Goodness gracious. <coughs> Here it is, folks. Plug the dam and eat some ham. It's time for event or else. Take a bigger breath. And the colorist was Thomas Ziuko. And the colorist was Thomas... And the colorist was Thomas Ziuko. 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 Below them, Harbinger has gathered a large group of heroes along with Pariah and Alexander Luther to lead a final... Back on Earth, the Harbinger fart face as the gathering... as the gathering of Matt... who is not only... who is not only... Who is not only blah blah flada fart face? Who is not only oh my god? Why am I having problems with that? Pariah informs them that a great concentration of evil. I mean, I'm gonna I'm I'm take a drink, take a drink, folks. Ah, that's good stuff. Pariah informs them that a great concentration of evil. Concentration. Pariah and it's as the oh well, no, I skipped a part. That Alex, that Alexander Luther uses his that Alexander that Alexander golly that Alexander Luther uses his strange power <clears throat> that Alexander <clears throat> I'm gonna take another drink and start a whole sentence over Superman Superboy and Alexander Luther having never watched the type of movie <clears throat> Superman Superboy and Alexander Luther have just gonna I'm just gonna breathe and the four of them vanish back on earth Lila speaking to Pariah and Lady Clark. Back on Earth, Lila. Back on Earth, Lila speaking to. Per- <coughs> we'll take another drink. <coughs>